Hi, I'm Jody Millman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavan. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavan 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Mary Tyler Moore, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. In these days of COVID-19, our podcast has reached out to the residents of the Hudson Valley who have been instrumental in the development of our unique music scene. Joining us today is Stan Beinstein, local music maven, historian, and chronicler of music in the Hudson Valley. Stan began his career producing concerts like The Who at SUNY New Pulse then moved on to become sales manager at WPDH during its heyday and establishing it as the home of rock and roll. And of course, he remained close friends with Larry Plover, music impresario and owner of The Chance until Larry's untimely death. Stan, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavan. Tell us a little bit about your days at SUNY New Pulse. Well, I I went off the SUNY New Pulse in 1968 and uh, wound up on the concert committee in 1969. In those two semesters, 69-70, we did seven, eight shows. I learned how to do a show. I learned how to run a show. And I almost flunked out. Okay. (laughs) But those eight shows. And a bit of irony is, uh, you know, uh, you remember my dear departed first wife, Rosalie, who we lost to breast cancer 18 years ago, was, was a great graphic artist as well as a fine artist. She was a high school kid in Clintondale at the time of The Who Show. The Who Show was um, uh, November of 69. I think it was the 11th. I don't have a date in front of me. Uh, we booked The Who in April. Uh, Tommy came out in May. The guy from Premier Talent came up, paid us a visit, seven people on the concert committee. They've written a rock opera, and we all left. Didn't know what the hell he meant by that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But May... You couldn't turn on a radio without hearing Pinball Wizard. By June, we're calling each other saying, they're going to cancel that date. This is, we bought The Who for $7,500. Whoa, whoa. You can't, you can't hire ticket takers for $7,500. Right, exactly. Although, okay. Now, the, the reason I mentioned Roe is that she was a high school kid in Clintondale. In those days, you had these rounded corner globe tickets that went to a printer to print whatever the number was, 2,500 tickets. She counterfeited and made two tickets to get into the show and did. (laughs) The irony is, the irony is I was in charge of security that night. (laughs) And and I would not meet her for another four years. (laughs) So uh, that's the who story. So in any case, uh, yeah, we did uh, Chicago Seals and Croft and Chuck Berry on one bill in the gym. And all three acts together cost us $5,000. Now, where the was, number- was the Who show an indoor or outdoor show? Oh, it was Elting Gym. That Elting was Elting Gym. gym. Okay. It, it, capacity of about 2,700. There had to be 4,000 people. Now, would you say the Who was the largest act that you, uh, that you had during that time? Well, absolutely. And in terms of uh, just extraordinary timing, uh, we, we booked them in April. Tommy was released in May. Woodstock happened in August. And we're eight weeks later going, we're, they're going to blow this date off. They don't want to play a gym in a college. But they went back to England for four weeks to prep a solid week, which was not traditional, at the Fillmore East. 
every night for a week. Usually it was just Friday, Saturday. And, and we uh, were the warm-up to that. So it all worked out. And it also proved that the Hudson Valley could be great routing for acts coming from Boston or out to Buffalo, whether they're heading uh, east or north or south. That would prove to be a factor later in life with the Last Chance Saloon, the Bardavon and Civic Center, etc. Now, with the, with the Who, do you remember what the ticket price was? Oh, it was probably two or three bucks. And how many kids could fit into the Elting Gym? Uh, technically, 25, 2,700. There had to be 4,000 in oh, there. Oh, really? It was one of the, it was sardines in the gym. It was? Packed like sardines in the gym. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So, in, in, in any case, uh, we, we did that. And then we did the outdoor shows with Joe Cocker in the airplane. And I could talk about those shows at New Paltz, and I have been forced to do so on Facebook ad infinitum. You can visit me on Facebook where the Jedi Productions guys go off into, uh, that's, that's later on. But in any case, I, I went back to the city uh, and I found a job because I could not find a teaching job, which I was looking for, uh, at the 10th largest ad agency in the world, Compton Advertising. And I became a media research analyst. That guy just crunched numbers all day for Tide and Ivory Snow. And this drove me batty after about a year and a half. And I left for California. And I spent four months on the road thinking I'd find fame and fortune out there. That didn't happen. So I got homesick when the colors weren't going to change. Mm. And when I came back, I didn't want to be in the city, so I came back to New Paltz. And I started a band booking agency, booking openers to concerts, bands like the Wamblers, who were good friends of mine, etc. And uh, in October of that year, 74, I see a poster for the Flying Burrito Brothers at the Last Chance Saloon in Poughkeepsie. What the hell is this place? Because the Burrito Brothers were a favorite band of mine back in, that had broken up at that point numerous times. Now, you have to understand that New Paltz kids with long hair did not cross that bridge between 68 and 72. Sheriff Larry Quinlan was a, a fierce opponent, shall we say, of anybody who had a peace sign bumper stick on the back of his car. That would be me. I had been forewarned by the members of NRBQ who had been put in jail and had their hair cut. So I didn't know my way around Poughkeepsie, even though I had lived right across the river for over four years. I found this place. I fell in love with it. Um, I made fast friends with Larry Plover, the owner. I wound up uh, helping book opening acts. Uh, but I realized that my agency, when, when the phone bills exceeded the commissions I was able to make, I said, this isn't working out. And I, I worked at the chance for a while at the door. Well, let's, let's talk about the chance. I mean, the chance, what year did the chance open? Do you remember? Well, I've got a poster here from 1971. It was either 70 or 71. Yeah, I was in high school out. when it opened. So I think it was in, in 70 or 71. I remember okay. that. Gene Krupa. I mean, Larry and Mike, if you really uh, dig well, into we're talking they, about Larry Plover who was one yep. of the founders of The Last Chance, on Crannell Street. We're talking about uh, the venue that's there. And Mike, what was Mike's last Curiati. name? Curiati. Curiati, right. The two of them took this old theater 
and Mitch, which maybe held uh, six or seven hundred people, turned it. Oh, well, it depends on, on how skinny they were. Right. Uh, well, you had a bar on one floor, and then you had a balcony upstairs. I mean, it was a regular theater and a big stage. The stage not was huge. Not day. There was no balcony. It wasn't safe. It was just a ladder to go upstairs. Oh, really? And it was the last chance. In later years, Pete Francis would put a million dollars into that place to make it to keep it from falling down. Right. But when Mike and Larry had it, there was no heating system. I'll never forget a world-renowned guitarist like Larry Coriel on a winter's night playing acoustic with his hands near what's called a salamander industrial outdoor heater. Mm. Just to get the place, these guys were just... It was a dump. Right. And, and now, what, what, uh, what musicians came through the chance when you were working there? Uh, well, obviously the most famous one would go opting out for most famous stores would be the police. Yeah, but no, I'm talking, no, I'm talking about before PDH. I'm talking about when you were working at the chance. Oh, I can't I can't distinguish in that period uh, where, where Larry introduced me to Rob Dyson. Mm -hmm. um, probably or back then, the last chance jazz band owned the house on Friday right, and Saturday. And Saturday nights, right. National attractions would be in there Wednesday, Thursday, and uh, Sunday. Orleans owned Thursday, as I right. recollect. Martha Velez owned Wednesday. Uh, I forget who was there on Sunday. It was a bunch of Woodstock musicians would come in and rotate. And occasionally they'd have a national attraction. Maybe somebody like Tom Paxton or uh, Jonathan Edwards, usually folk or jazz. Mm -hmm. They did not want, in fact, the first rock and roll musicians to ever play there as a rock and roll band, I don't have the dates in front of me, were uh, John Platania and John Regan, two local guys. I don't know if you know John. And yes, John. I do. Yep. Mm -hmm. they, have, uh, they had a power trio at the time. And this was after uh, Platania had already been with Van Morrison, the right. Moondance album and Street Choir. And uh, Regan would go on to spend 25 plus years with Peter Frampton, and, uh, as well as Rolling Stones and, and, and Stephen Stills. They were local guys, they were experimenting with rock and roll on the stage. And, and, and Michael, in particular, as a jazz musician, did not want to turn it into a rock and roll club. One of the funniest stories I remember is Eric Horsbow, out of New Paltz, used to book bands into the chance. And one that was just exploding with college kids, particularly Vassar kids, was the Ramones. Mm -hmm. And every four weeks they'd be in there and we'd go look at them and get they're not any better than they were four weeks ago and they'd stand outside and laugh our asses off. Well, and, you know, and, Stan, one of the things that you're saying is that Poughkeepsie itself has always been um, a sponge or, or, or better, a magnet for, for me top names. Let me read you a quote. And this, this is a quote. Uh, pulled out of a book called The American Revolution, and I don't have the author's name in front of me. It's about, the, the initial part, first part of the sentence is about Woodstock, the town of Woodstock. Just how much cachet the town's name had become obvious when a group of young entrepreneurs selected it as the site for a rock festival in the summer of 1969. When the town denied them the permits and forced the move to White Lake, it was still called Woodstock Music and Art Festival. 25 years later, during the band's induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at New York's Waldorf Astoria, the group's Robbie Robertson noted, if it hadn't been for Albert, meaning Albert Grossman, we'd probably be known as the Poughkeepsie generation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Right, right. Now, he knew this town. Robbie knew this town because he used to go to Poughkeepsie Music, which was owned by Kiriati's parents. Uh, forgive me. What's the name of the piano store? Uh, Vintitors. Thank you. The name wasn't coming. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, I, I know that the band bought equipment there mm -hmm. and at Kiriati's family store. So... Um, the more popular the Ramones got, and that college well, they had they had to try to make money any way they could, you know, understanding their own taste. Be damned. Mm. Um, the uh, they, they moved uh, the, the Ramones' second album, "Road to Ruin," back cover is a photo of the stoop of the original stoop of the Chance before that windscreen. Uh, right. Right, was added. Okay, and when I when I looked at it, I said, "Holy!" Yeah. <laughs> I went down to I went down there at lunchtime, and I put it in front of Mike, and he had some choice words like essentially saying it had to be them. Yeah. <laughs> you know? uh, but that that was that was the tone and tenor of they wanted to be more artistic, but the money is where the money is, and right. that's why they would show business. So uh, in any case. Uh, as I was working there in those days, uh, Larry, God bless him, we partnered up to do a show at the Bardavon uh, in, in June of 76, and this was already in the works, uh, and it was Rick Derringer. Rick Derringer was known for rock and roll, Hoochie Coo, and the band of McCoys, and his work with uh, Johnny Winter, but his name is, is actually Rick Zeringer, but he's worked under the name of the Rick Derringer for six, seven years at that point. Uh, Steve Paul, his manager, decides we can't advertise him as Rick Derringer. The name of the band is now Derringer. Well, that kind of is an awkward way to try and sell it. In, in any case, in all of the machinations of preparing this show in uh, April, May of 76, Larry sits me down for lunch with Rob Dyson. Rob's taking that country station and it's going to be an FM like any W. You belong over there. And it's obvious that I wasn't making much of a living trying to book bands and doing security at the door of the chance. And at lunch, I tell Rob, I want a programming. And he says, I have a programmer. I need you to sell it. You spent a couple of years on Madison Avenue. I don't want to sell. You'll thank me in a couple of years. <laughs> I want programming on my business card. And I have my first business card from PDH that said sales slash program. And I, <laughs> I, I was the biggest thorn in Roy Rutanen's rear end. <laughs> now, Roy Rutanen was the first program director at WPDH. And Correct. WPDH signed on, it was in June of... It was June 40, 176. I was going to say, 44 years ago. Right. Two weeks before my Derringer show, PDH is on the air, and I'm blasting away for two weeks is all I had with this new radio station. Didn't matter. I had 800 seats. I had 500 seats to sell to break even, and I probably sold 400 to Derringer. So there, as my empty pockets, and I probably lost, I don't know, the, the $1,000 I didn't really have. <laughs> Uh, I went to work for Rob Dyson the day after the bicentennial on July 5th. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the rest, as they say. And, and so, Well, let's talk a little bit about PDH. First of all, PDH has always had, uh, always had during your tenure, a close relationship with the Bardavon. 
And I oh, remember, God. I remember specifically, uh, and I should have full disclosure that my husband, Mike Harris, was um, on the air PDH when you first, uh, you know, when you when you first came on to the sales team, and then eventually went on to become the general manager of the. Uh, of the operation. And he said to me to tell you that if it weren't for Mike Harris, there wouldn't be, wouldn't have been any live music in the Hudson Valley. (laughs) 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 Anyway, um, I remember that the, that PDH was playing a band called the Talking Heads and it was around, it was Psycho Chicken and nobody had heard of it. And then they were booked into the bar Psycho divine. killer, not psycho chicken. Psycho killer. Psycho killer, psycho killer, right? <laughs> right. Psycho killer. <laughs> psycho killer, psycho chicken, same thing. Anyway, so when they when they came onto the stage, it was like music the band had been discovered by a mass of people that had really never heard of them except on PDH. Do you remember that? Well, Do you- the- the story of, of the first Talking Heads Hudson Valley date that got advertised on PDH was when, like everything else Eric Horsbolt touched, he was prescient about the future. I say he had the Midas touch. Everything mm-hmm. he touched turned to mufflers. He put the uh, Talking Heads as a trio before uh, the bass player joined, um, the keyboard player, excuse me, at the Joyous Lake in Woodstock. And they, it was raining. It was a Thursday night. They drew about 18 people. And all Ronnie Marion's could say is, get them the hell off my stage. Mm-hmm. He said, you have them for two nights. There'll be stars by tomorrow. Point, yes, the talking heads are one of those stories that took a while to fo- to foment, if you will. Right. Um, but we can, we, we, could, we could have an entirely different conversation about the Joyous Lake. Right. I'm steering you back to the Bardavan. And I'm steering it back to talking heads. I don't recollect the talking heads. I remember. I remember Dave. Come on, my brains. What's his name? Leader. David. uh, David Byrne. What's Byrne? Thank you. Uh, Yeah, don't get a little older. Things get a little. (laughs) But David Byrne played the Bardavon, but Talking Heads never did. Talking Heads. Yeah, they did. Stan, I was there. (laughs) <laughs> okay, well then I wasn't. <laughs> I saw them at the Hudson Civic Center was stopped making sense. No, that was that was uh, years later, right? But I'm talking so about the whole band. It was a talking. Heads, it was the whole band. It was a talking heads. Okay. Yes, yes. Well, tell me about it. But let's. But I, I want to kind of again focus in on PDH because we could talk about another event, another venue that was really important in bringing music, and that was also it was called the. Um, it was it was the Good Times Cafe. I mean, Cindy Lauper was at the Good Times Cafe. There was a, a period of time where you had the Chance, you had the Bardavon, you had the Good Times. You had these these uh, really amazing venues that were responsible for bringing in bands before they got started. I mean, it was kind of like if you look at the CBGBs or you look at the bottom line of New York, we had the Good Times, we had the Bardavon, and we had the Last Chance. And when the drinking gauge went from 18 to 21, it all slowly dried up. And right. Went away. Except for the Bardavan. Except, well, except for legitimate theater. Right. 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 So bars you're talking about. Right. And, and bars are bars. Bars, I remember uh, once uh, uh, Pete Francis booked 
B.B. King into the champs, two shows sold out to the walls. And I think it was 20 some odd thousand dollars, which was an unheard of number in the early 80s. Uh, and when he did the math on the two shows, he was destined at a sellout to lose three grams. So why are you doing this? It's because that crowd's going to drink bourbon, not beer. And I'm going to have a $20,000 bar that night. And he did. Well, think of And that's, of- that's why the different metrics. I was yeah. just going to say, let's, let's kind of run down some of the bands that you remember playing at The Chance. I mean, off the top of my head, I remember seeing uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan there. I remember uh, Todd Rundgren. Um, I mean, when they were unknown, the Stray Cats and Duran Duran back exactly, to back night. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, all that stuff. Yeah, but well, the, the one story that's dearest to me because it has taken on mythological significance was that October night, nineteen seventy-eight, when the Police played at the Chance. Right. Now I, I mentioned Eric before, dear Eric. Lost money with Peter Gabriel in the Civic Center. Lost money with uh, the talking heads at the Joyce Lake. And booked the police into the chance and netted four paid customers that night. Um, I have to take some credit for that. I'm waiting for an album from a band. Because the police had decided to come to this country without the backing of A&M Records, their manager, uh, Ian Copeland, the drummer's brother, said, it's time for us to go to the States. A&M said, you're not ready to go to the States. He put them on Freddie Laker's Sky Train, and they played the Rat in Boston. They had a CBGB state, which the chance was the warm-up, and a few other dates in Syracuse and on into this part of the country. And uh, they were working for the door, or, or 200 bucks, I think, a $200 guarantee. Uh, it was not a blizzard or a snowy night, as they described. But it was that freezing rain that makes you not want to start your car at 9, 10 o'clock at night. Right, right. I remember you and called it, Mike it, and asked him if he wanted to go see the police. He said, now nah, sit yeah. this one out. No, I, w- I was home. I went out. We were living together at the right. time in Hyde. Right, right. We were living together. I got, and I'll tell you the reason I went out. Uh, it was another one of, oh, another one of Eric's bands. Forget it. I'm not going to put any effort into this nonsense. A week before the gig. I- I'm looking at... Uh, Where's this record? And I asked Mike Curiati, and he says, I don't know, it's Eric's show. Nobody calls Eric. Eric doesn't call me. And it was a Monday night, and I got on Wednesday before a 45 of the song Roxanne. And I was expecting some crap like the bands, like the Cramps and all that punk crap like the Ramones. I really have no taste for it. Some of it now, I get nostalgic for the Ramones. I, I, I get a laugh out of it. But I put on Roxanne, and I was immediately taken by the singer and the drummer. I said, holy, these guys are, this is the real deal. This isn't some punk act. And I played it for everybody in the building, and I had no press kit. So I came up with the brilliant line of the arresting sound of the police. <laughs> I put together a 30-second ad just letting Roxanne play this Monday night, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. It drew four paid customers. Mm-hmm. And the eight hangers on at the bar, Paul Rossman was the bartender that night. That afternoon, I went into the bar to see the set up, and I got to chatting with Ian Copeland, the manager. And I said, boy, that record's, that's killer. I, I've got to hear the album. And he says, yeah, you know, we're, we're looking for a road manager. Now, that's a job I understand. 
I've known many road managers in my years of doing this stuff. And opportunity was hitting me in the face like a truck. I could have said, I'm your guy. Okay. But I didn't. I was in love and remained in love. And I knew that if I hit the road, I'm not coming back. Mm. That's the nature of those of that job particularly. You go and you keep going. And and wherever you know home is, you'll find out in another portion of your life. So I, I, I occasionally brag about that opportunity, but I'm glad I did not avail myself of it. Aren't you uh, mentioning Sting's have... book? Isn't isn't there a reference to you in Sting's biography? There's a reference to the date, but there's no reference to me. Uh, but I did have another opportunity to speak with him. Ironically, when Pete owned the chance in 83, uh, John Sher invited Pete down to see YouTube before they were a real big deal. The War album, I believe, was the second or the third. It was going to launch them as stars with Sunday Bloody Sunday. We got invited down to uh, the Capitol Theater in say. And uh, I go down with Peter. We wind up in the dressing rooms as an after party. And there's Sting and John Entwistle, two bassists I admire greatly, across this very crowded room. And the temptation, I'm going to go, no, I'm not going to do that. And I didn't. I just didn't have the courage to say I was blah, blah, blah. Pete claims he did. Now, he very well may have, but uh, there have been numerous references. And What's his name? Andy Summers, the guitarist, claims it was a a blizzard that night. Uh, I was introduced to him by Bill Palmieri, which is a very funny little PDH anecdote. Well, God Bill, bless Bill. Bill Palmieri, you have to explain yeah. some people to who Bill was one of the. He was the program director at the time at PDH. Right. And Bill was the program director at PDH doing the afternoon show. And Andy Summers was coming back to the chance. This is after the police had broken up. They'd become a stadium act. They broke all the rules for success. You went through clubs then you went to small theaters. Then you went to arenas, then you went to stadiums. That's a natural progression of events for bands that are going to succeed. The police played a few tiny little clubs and disappeared. And suddenly we're an arena act. How the hell this happened? People still talk about to this day. And when it all died down to them, Andy Summers, who I had ironically seen years before with his short stint in The Animals, comes back to the chance with highly esoteric music. It was kind of like Robert Fripp um, of uh, King Crimson. Strange stuff, compelling stuff, but not stuff PDH could play at that point. There are different phases of how that station succeeded. So when uh, he, it's a sellout and uh, he, there's an interview and he's coming by PDH and I'm standing in the studio and, and Billy's about to, um, and, and, and as he comes in the studio, uh, he, uh, Bill, uh, Robert asked him, uh, I mean, Andy asked him, which track are you playing? He says, well, we're not able to play it. And I don't know if I can use expletives here. No, you can't. <laughs> this is okay. a family show. Well, put one in, because Andy said, what the blank am I doing here? Mm. And Billy, the blood left his head completely. <laughs> And then 
Then he says, oh, oh, by the way, this is Stan Weinstein. He was at that first date. So now, now that uh, Andy Summers is good and angry, he looks at me and goes, yeah, you and 5,000 other people I've met. <laughs> which, which, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I left. <laughs> so so that, when you think about PDH, um, who... Can, can you give us a list of some of the artists that came through the door? Because I remember that um, there was a time in radio where artists would actually come and hang out with you. You don't hear that anymore. I mean, if you listen to serious radio, I mean, they, they give artists their own shows. They don't have them as cameo guests on the air. Can you remember some of the people that came through the doors? <laughs> I had, and I just got, you'll remember our mutual friend, Jimmy Cummings. Yes, who I connected with very recently. It's mm-hmm. a long story. I'll spare you. He reconnected me with an hour-long interview I did with Charles Mingus on WPDA. Wow. In '76, mm-hmm. uh, and I had took great pride with Ming in talking about Jeff Beck's version of "Goodbye Pork Pie Hat," which remains my favorite blues. But in any case, that's a diversion. I'll say for another time. Uh, eh, in those days, I used to go pick up the act at the Chance or the Civic Center. Uh, there were rarely rock acts at the Bardavon. If I were to think, and the focus of this largely being the Bardavon, uh, those days in 76, 77, 78, Larry was doing things like Randy <laughs> Newman, Tower of Power, mm-hmm. uh, Roger McGuinn. But when the Civic Center got built, when you're dealing with 3,000 tickets versus 800, And and I have to give major kudos to Chris Silva. He's done a yeoman's job. Um, I do remember the last movie to play at the Bardavon. I went on a date with Rosalie in 1975. Do you remember the last movie to play when... I, you know, off the tip of my tongue, I don't know what it is. It was a turn of the century. It was was Western called Bite the Bullet with Gene Hackman, Candace Bergen, and James Coburn, mm-hmm. directed by Richard Brooks. It was a pretty good movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the last film to play the Bardavan in, I believe it was the autumn of 75. You know, a lot of people don't in really, any case, don't the, really the know. It used to be my job. A lot of people don't really know that they showed movies there. Everybody thinks of it as a, as a, uh, a music venue. But I remember growing up, I remember seeing The Sound of Music there. It's a mad, mad world. I mean seeing all these great films there. Yeah, uh, it, well, the, that, they would be uh, not a list acts because usually those people came uh, with their own uh, entourage and it would be the job of trying to get them in the dressing room as the time that your husband and I interviewed Stephen Stills in the right. basement of the right. center getting him to the station was not going to happen. Uh, I do remember uh, taking a ride with Joe Piscopo from the chance back to the, to the radio station. I thought the man was a lunatic and he <laughs> proven himself to be one. Uh, but it was people like uh, David Bromberg, Yorma Kalkin and um, Dave Edmonds, um, Jonathan Edwards. I would bring them by the station when they were playing usually the Civic Center or the Chance. The shows that went on at the Bardavon uh, became fewer 
in terms of pop and rock when the Civic Center was built. Right. 76, 77, Larry was doing stuff like, I, I believe I said this before, Randy Newman, uh, Tower of Power, uh, Roger McGuinn. I remember those three very well. Uh, and 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 uh, Phil Sagano of the Town Crier brought in one show that remains legendary, and that was uh, Tom Waits with Leon Redbone opening, mm. which probably is one of the finest shows I've ever seen anywhere, let alone just the Bardavan. Uh But yeah, we, we we had a good synergy going. Uh, everything from Aerosmith to Stevie Ray to God knows what rock and roll kind of stuff went through the Civic Center mostly. And we'd have access to those artists if we went into the, into the Civic Center. But to get them by the radio station, we, we, we had a lock on the door. The, the did, way we, we did had Tony, a lock on the Did Tony Bennett ever come to the radio station? Tony Bennett did not that I know of. No, no, because I know he played at the Civic Center and he's played yes. at uh, the Bardavan. He did their gala. Um, but he never came to the radio station. I have a poster right here. <laughs> I Yes, and I'm a big time fan of Tony, but uh, no, he he never came by the station that I know of. Um, but I, the relationship that PDH had with the promoters, I'll have to take a good degree of credit for. First, it was Larry who put me together with Rob, and Larry and his partner Bill Tudorberg, who ran Westchester Premiere. There's a notorious photo of Bill Tudorberg with uh, Carlo Gambino and Frank Sinatra. Wow. In the, uh, in the dressing rooms of the Westchester premiere. And when Larry and, and Bill gave up the Civic Center, who'd they sell the contract to exclusively? Harvey and Corky Productions. And, and most people may not know that Harvey was Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. I did business with Harvey Weinstein and his minions. Okay, well, his minions were his brother, Bob. And also, no, never, never in the concert business. Stayed in the movies, but he didn't want anything to do with concerts. Brad, though. Brad Gray, however, was his uh, right arm. Right, and Brad Gray went on to run Paramount Theaters, Paramount uh, Movies. Paramount Pictures. Paramount Pictures. He was also the manager of Brillstein Gray, of everyone from Gary Shandling to uh, uh, 100 comedians. But obviously, he rose to the pinnacle of being CEO of Paramount Pictures, right. one of the producers of The Sopranos, and, and um, tragically died a young man in his early 60s uh, of cancer. And, and Brad, uh, Harvey stopped coming to Poughkeepsie. Brad ran the show down here. He put on a triple bill at the Mid-Hudson Civic Center when he knew he was moving out of this concert business and going into management. We didn't know that. And the triple bill was three unknown comedians, Gary Shandling, Bob Saget, and uh, I can't remember the name of the third guy who was an impressionist. I, I picked the third guy to succeed. Um, <laughs> I, I, I took a picture of Harvey once in Buffalo with Brad on the set of their very first film, which was called The Burning, mm -hmm. a horror film. And Jason Alexander was actually, it was his first film as well. He played a camp counselor and a, it took place at a camp and it was a murder and blah, blah, blah. And that photo got around and it got into Judd Apatow's hands, as I had told you this before. My, my photo wound up in uh, in Apatow's HBO film about Gary Shandling 
because Gary wound up suing Brad Gray, but that's going far afield. Point <laughs> to stay close to the promoters. I stayed close to Larry. I stayed clo- as close as I could to Brad and, and those people. And Ron Marion's at the Joyous Lake. And Stu Green, who I remain good friends with, because I knew if our name was on the, if PDH's name was on the show and I was putting a DJ on the stage, the public would perceive that we are responsible for bringing all this great music into the Hudson Valley. And we paid a heavy price. I would give $5,000 worth of advertising and promotion for maybe 2,500 bucks, wheeling and dealing to make, and, and if they had any inclination that they were going to give the show to someone else, I, I gave them a serious case of heartburn. An example was when Pete, uh, the poor folks at SPK in those days, wanted something, anything, and they were going to put their name on James Brown. And he took James Brown away from me. And, and, I, and, I, and I went storming into that office. <laughs> Who took James Brown away from me? Nobody James Brown. Neither do they. Yeah, right, right, exactly. Not well, the was, point. That was a day when where they had the radio wars. That was in the 70s and 80s. Wouldn't you say, oh. Stan? And if you're looking at the local, if you're looking at the local market, you had WPDH, you had WSPK. Who else were your competitors at that time? Yeah, they were a small potatoes right. player. But those were the radio the, wars. The two stations that had power, fifty thousand watt stations, were PDH and SPK. We at PDH had a signal that hit twelve counties in five states, and just kind of died in Midwestchester. SPK being twenty miles south of us, I realized in those early years, I li- I, I listened to them in my car radio in Times Square, and all I could think was, "Thank God they can't figure out what they've got." Right, and they and they never did. They never did because uh, if I had. What they had signal-wise, I'd have had my thumb all over Westchester. Uh, but w- that is the case now, that that group, SBK, HUD, uh, and, and radio is, is, is in a crisis mode to begin with. It's not, stations aren't competing with each other. They're competing with other platforms. And irony, a connection to PVH, um, we're not competing with radio, as I said, with Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, and other forms of getting your music from all these sources. Who's the vice president of programming at Pandora? Ron Nenny, mm-hmm. a veteran of the first crew at WPDH, along with your husband and Roy Rutanen and Ron Rizzi. Ron Nenny has actually added my album. Oh, we didn't talk about my album yet. Well, let's talk about that, Stan. <laughs> let's, that's a nice segue. Let's talk about your album, Senior Moments. In your moments, well, I, 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 I've hung around musicians for 50 years. I sang in a few bands. I can, I can handle any song that has three chords. If it's a diminished or a fourth chord, I really have to put, bring myself, rise to the occasion. Some of the, I, I released an album in February. I had great timing. Released it February 12th, put it in a bunch of local record stores. And uh, it, where it still sits to this day, <laughs> At Dark Side and, and Rhino and uh, uh, Oblong, etc. Uh, but nobody buys CDs anyway. I made this CD because I wanted to have a showcase for some of my late wife Rosalie's artwork and uh, gives my daughter Sarah a chance at graphics. I wrote these 18 songs over a 50-year period. Two of them go back to my New Paltz days. Some of them were written in the 70s, the 80s, and some of them were written last year. 
Uh, it is titled Senior Moments. Go to StanBeinstein.com. That's B-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Bernstein with an I or Weinstein with a B. Uh, <laughs> is it streaming on any platforms? Can people uh, download it, it from it iTunes? On Pandora, it's available on Spotify. If you request it when you go on, and I appreciate it if you do, mm-hmm. uh, you can listen to it for free. I put the whole album up on YouTube. Okay. You want to give it eight or ten bucks? It's, my, my, it's not the reason I did it. I, I decided I had to do this before I turned 70, and the months were getting closer. <laughs> As Paul Simon said, how terribly strange. But, you know, so I, 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 I beat that mark by uh, seven months. And, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of proud of it. I, I, I read a quote, and I can't remember who to attribute it to, that art exists in an infinitesimal space between extraordinary Extraordinary self-consciousness and incredible ego. Okay. What an odd thing to say. And then I wake up one day and I go, I'm terrible. I, I can't I can't release this thing. These th- this is embarrassing. I'm I'm not good enough to I'm not worthy. Mm-hmm. And the next day I go, I'm a genius. Yeah. This is, <laughs> this, is great stuff. this is great stuff. This is really just from the heart. This is real. And I can actually turn a phrase. Um, so there you go, back and forth. I've had. Uh, I'm very glad that old friends and family have said nice things, and I was thrilled that Ron Nenny, that he noticed that it belonged next to John Prime. I said, well, I don't deserve that. And that That's was wonderful, long before Stan. John died. I, I wrote a song for John. It's not on the album uh, when when he did pass. So but that's a true story. So, uh, Stan, if, if people want to buy your album, they can go to www.stanbeinstein.com. It's on no, they can't buy it there. They okay. can buy it at Amazon. Okay. They can buy it at CD Baby. Okay. And they can buy the files or they can buy the physical uh, um, CD. CD itself. Or, huh? Have you downloaded it to iTunes? Is it available on iTunes? I believe it is. It's all part of a package that I paid a service for. Uh, I believe it is at iTunes as well. Great. Great. So it's available and go to YouTube. You can listen to all the tunes. So Stan, I really appreciate you being with us at Backstage with the Bardavon. You are a music historian. You are an historian and an artist. And it's uh, someone who really knows and loves music as well as the Hudson Valley. And we appreciate you being here with us today. Well, thanks for inviting me, Jody. It's been a pleasure. Great. Thanks, Stan. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Stan Beinstein and the Bardavon 1869 Opera House for supporting our Backstage with the Bardavon podcast. Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Melman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can review it on iTunes. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon.